0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom slash socks. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel, Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Benjamin Bickman about his new book, Why We Get Sick, and about his career in the sciences. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bickman.
1: Christina, thank you so much. I am delighted to be a guest. I think this is a wonderful opportunity to uh, allow students some insight.
0: I'm so excited that we get to do this, and uh, as a historian, it's really fun for me to talk to scientists because I get a whole window into an entire field that I wouldn't otherwise have that window in, so it's exciting for me. Um, to start us off, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Yeah, I am I, I'm from Alberta, Canada. Uh, I was raised, born and raised in a very small town, one of the many little farm towns um, just above the Montana-Alberta border. And I was, I'm part of a big family. I was one of nine children, all of us sort of uh, freckled, reddish haired. And then our mom passed away when we were quite young. And my dad later married a woman with four of her own children. And so I am one of 13 kids. I'm number nine when we're, when we look at it as the the combined family, which means we're a little bit of an army uh, kind of slowly taking over North America. Uh, my My interests in what put me on the path, I think, could in a way um, be, um, the origin could have been my childhood, uh, where my dad, who mostly raised us on his own, um, he was always very interested in health. Not that we were out um, having pull-up competitions as a family or anything like that, but he was very mindful of what he was feeding us. and. Uh, you know, for example, we didn't eat cereal for breakfast. It was always a much more hearty sort of stove cooked breakfast. And, and my dad was very diligent about making sure we all had our vitamins. And so I think in, in a way, perhaps my, my interest in human health started then. Uh, but that is, that's my, you know, long background, my childhood, uh, that ultimately perhaps put me on the path I'm on.
0: I really appreciate it when people talk about their family of origin because, as I do, episode after episode, I find that there's so much from our family of origin that that does influence our life paths, um, either to inspire or uh, as an aversion. We're we're sort of a, a constantly in uh, an adult conversation with the childhood experience that we had in some way or another.
1: Yeah, right. Well said.
0: So that was when you were little and at some point you decided to go to college. Can you tell us about right. your education path?
1: Yeah. So there was very much uh, a culture in my family of education. Uh, again, um, certainly that would have been an influence of my mom, who was a college graduate herself. In fact, indeed, my my parents met at college, as happens so often. And, and my dad certainly fostered that after my mom passed away. That was the culture of the family, and I was no exception. I started my undergraduate uh, a little late, actually. I'm very religious, and I'd served a, what we call a two-year mission uh, for my church in Russia, of all places. So right after I graduated from high school, I went to the middle-of-nowhere Russia for two years, having never—I hadn't ever spoken a word of Russian in my life and and learned Russian very fluently within a few months, thankfully, and settled in quite nicely. But nevertheless, that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, but but it, it nevertheless uh, it it put me in a position to be very uh, motivated and mature, perhaps is a better word when I did start my university life as an undergraduate because I didn't start it until I was twenty one. Of course, that's not typical. Um, but it I had had two years of some very um, well, extreme kind of life lessons in a way, uh, and 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 just you know the hardships that would come with living in um, uh, in, in Russia in the mid '90s, and so I, I started my undergraduate career. Uh, you know, perhaps a little more mature than the average freshman, one would hope. And my immediate uh, focus had been. Uh, well, to perhaps pursue employment, or, or you know, a, a degree that would put me on a path of employment within the State Department because I spoke Russian so fluently. Um, but I, I found those uh, I found those courses as I did indeed start with that to just be kind of boring. It, it it wasn't something that I was very passionate about, despite having become a passionate sort of global citizen, if you will, at the time. I didn't want to do that as my career and my interests, the more honest I was being with myself, the more I admitted that my interests really lied in the human body, you know, perhaps because of my upbringing with my dad or losing my mom to a chronic disease at a young age. And, uh, it's, and even having always been interested in athletics as, as a boy, as much as I could in a town of 800 people, you know, there weren't a lot of options, but I was always interested in, I'm trying to get the best out of my body and that led me to exercise science as an undergraduate degree. I was just interested really in how the body um, adapts to a stimulus like exercise. You know, what could be a noxious stimulus, like hurting a muscle, in the end becomes a favorable or, or, or physiological stimulus where the body adapts and becomes better at the back end of whatever the stimulus had been. So that was my undergraduate and near the end of my undergraduate degree. And indeed, this is this is perhaps the most relevant moment here in this conversation, as I would imagine me speaking to undergraduates. I, I got married uh, towards the end of my undergraduate, at the beginning of my senior year. And uh it was as my as my you know, fiance at the time, and then of course shortly thereafter my wife, as we would discuss our future family, we had um I guess in a way we were um uh, conventional in that, in that my wife was, we were both very interested in a family, not surprising, of course, given that I, or maybe I would have revolted against being one of 13, but I, if it, and there was certainly some challenges with that, but I'd also allowed, it, it gave me a unique appreciation for the family and, and my own desire to, to teach what I had learned, um, to, to, to my own next generation. So anyway, all that is just my way of saying, uh, we were married and then, it it would take us. We didn't have a child for about. Um, it was seven years after we were married that we had a child, and so my wife certainly finished her education and worked throughout all of that period while I was a graduate student. But before I became a graduate student, I uh, shortly after I was married, I, I guess for lack of a better word, had a kind of early life crisis. It was this i uh, this this weight of being a future provider. Um, as I imagined my own role uh, being a, a husband already and then a future father, it that it sort of crushed me, this this pressure of being, you know, 24 years old and thinking, what am I going to do to ensure that I am employable, that it's a job that will allow me to provide for my family? And and I didn't, I mean, more than providing um what I loved about my dad and he was successful in his as a businessman but as an entrepreneur he did have some flexibility with what he did and when he did it and he somehow managed to be there when things mattered when i had basketball games he was there when i had some other extracurricular activity he was there which is pretty impressive for how many children he had you know to be there for for each of us in our own ways So I wanted more than just providing for a family. I wanted to be there for my family, to my future family. And there was uh, really a moment as I was, you know, it was, it really was sort of like an early life crisis. I was, i had started grinding my teeth. I was sleeping very poorly. My wife, in fact, would, would wake me up in the night because she could hear me crunching my jaw and, and I would have headaches just probably because I was sleeping so poorly and and so this was something I was really thinking about and and trying to get any good advice and insight that I could. And then I was sitting in class one time looking at one of my professors whom I had come to know pretty well. Over, I think it was the second class I'd had with him. And I just was struck by his own life and what I knew him to be as a, as a very devoted family man and, and a guy who really seemed to enjoy his job. And so I immediately went and spoke with him. It, well, in other words, that planted the seed of perhaps I would want to pursue academia as a as a profession. And I went and spoke with him about this, and he was very enthusiastic in his support. And he said, I think you ought to apply for the master's degree right now in this same department. It'll it'll be a comfortable transition for you because you know everybody here, and it'll let you get your feet wet as you entertain the idea of going further. And 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 so he's uh, I, I liked that advice. I, I thought, well, a master's degree is a nice way to give me a little more time and not to discount anyone's master's degree in any any area. but i I actually think many people who get master's degree, master's degrees, do so. Because they don't quite know what they want to do yet. Now that won't always work, you know. Of course, if it's like an MBA, for example, that's very much a terminal thing. You've done it and you're done, and that you did that on purpose. But in my experience, many people who get master's degrees in sciences and even many of the arts, it's a way to give them a little more time. And so, not that I'm uh, not that I'm a, a wuss or anything, but I think in hindsight that probably is what appealed to me. So I, I was late though. He told me you're late in applying to the master's degree. If you want to do this, take the, uh, take the, uh, what's the GRE as quickly as you can. So I literally took it that weekend oh wow and, and did fine. I honest to goodness, I had a GRE for dummies. I'm not kidding. I went to the library here on campus, got a book called GRE for dummies and just learned what it was about and then scheduled the test and went and took it and did fine. Uh, f- certainly fine enough to get in and and that was uh, it was I mean, I've been talking too much about this, so i'll I'll be a little quick just to sum it up. Uh, that put me on the path uh, and I I don't mean to to sound silly, but but I do have to say this from the heart. I thank God in a way and or or I thank heavens if if or anything I'm just thankful um, uh, that that I was put on the path I'm on because it has allowed me to pursue interests that at the time I didn't know I had. And those interests started in my master's degree. By the end of my master's degree, I had totally lost interest, not totally, I'd mostly lost interest in the muscles and exercise, and had then almost wholly become fascinated in fat cells and obesity and disease, or diseases related to obesity and and just how the body controls the amount of fat that it has and the consequences that arise from it. That began at the end of my master's degree. I pursued that during my PhD, which had us move to North Carolina. And then it was during my PhD. In fact, during the first year of my PhD, that my mentor meant he dropped a word and he said, well, a term. And he said, well, this, you know, these are great topics you're studying. This could be work that you would follow up with during your postdoctoral fellowship. And I thought, what is a postdoctoral fellowship? And, and and I didn't want to admit it. I felt so ignorant. And so I go back to my lab and I chat with another PhD student and, and she happened to know what it was. You know, she was just more informed than me. And, and And so I came to come to find out that even after my PhD, I would still have this number of years before I could actually get the real job of professor. And that it was so funny when I, when I first learned about the postdoctoral fellowship that I would need to do it to be a professor in, in the hard sciences. I, I was just dreading the conversation with my wife um, and, and we didn't have any children yet. But even still, you know, I, I'd been on this path for a very long time. And and our first daughter was born during the last year of my PhD, so it was a couple years after this conversation, but it was me kind of letting her know, oh, by the way, sweetheart, I'm not going to be done. Even when this is done, I have one more step. Um, But in in fact, that last step for my postdoctoral fellowship, we had the opportunity to do that at Duke University, but at Duke's campus in Singapore, of all places, this beautiful tropical island in Southeast Asia. And... That was itself another kind of big decision for our little family. By the time we made that decision, we had our one little daughter. And thank heavens, my wife is just adventurous enough. And we both sort of knew as our family would grow, if we don't do this kind of, if we don't embrace this opportunity now to live abroad and have this experience for a few years, the likelihood of us doing it later in life would be almost, almost zero. And so we did it. We pounced. We lived in Singapore for three years, and then I got hired. And that was a wonderful experience with me continuing to learn more about fat cells and how their regulation subsequently impacts health in a number of ways. Um, And then it was 10 years ago this summer that I got hired as a professor and then started my own lab, the Metabolism Research Lab, where I've continued those interests. And of course, added to that, um, teaching undergraduates and graduate students. And I have, I truly, I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, the, the impression I had as an undergraduate looking at my professor and wondering, might that be the job I want? Um, you're certainly a little underpaid. Um, everyone, perhaps in any career says that, but to get paid, to be curious and to share that curiosity with students is, uh, is a wonderful Glorious profession. Uh, I I get to I get to find answers to questions as a scientist, and then as a professor, I get to share those answers with students, whether they are answers from my own research, or whether they are answers from other scientists, other professionals over the years, over the over the the centuries. In some instances, uh, that is a that's a noble. Thing and, and very gratifying. And then, and then to sum that up, the fact that my schedule is largely my own, I can come into work a little late some days. If, if there's more demands at home, I can go home early um, like I did yesterday to um, help my boy get to his karate lessons. It, it is, it's really the realization. It's a very satisfying place to be. Not that life is perfect, far, far from it, but that impression that I had as a, as a young undergraduate, to see it in many ways realized now, 20 years later, um, in my mid-40s now, is is a pretty neat thing.
0: So let's talk about how one gets to have their own lab. Um, I've been reading a bit about the sciences, and, and um, I was specifically reading about MIT recently, um, and... I was noticing how they had all of these different labs and they were headed by professors and students had to apply to be part of them. Can you demystify what it is to have your own lab and how students become part of a professor's lab?
1: Yes. Yes. So when a professor now, of course, I'm speaking at this uh, to this from the perspective of a professor in the in the you know so-called hard sciences. And I think that's a term I can use um, freely where, where it's really just, I actually, I don't know why, I don't know why they, we say hard or soft sciences because there is sort of an implied insult there perhaps. And I don't, I don't mean it. Um, so I'll just say life sciences in the life sciences, which is the college that I'm in. If you get hired at almost any university, you are hired on, well, at least at my university, there are two tracks. There is the, um, professorial track, and then there's a professional track at my university. And I think most fit this indeed, most do, um, if you're hired in the realm of life sciences or the physical sciences, you are hired on the professorial track, which is that you would be expected to contribute to the research that that university is is producing. You're getting funding, you're publishing manuscripts, you're doing presentations. In other words, you're sort of bringing to some degree money through through grant mechanisms or funding uh, and prestige to the university. And so when I was hired, part of my hiring process involved a research talk there was a teaching talk too because my university very much has a teaching expectation. Not all do. Other uh, my my colleagues at a university at the University of Utah, for example, they teach very very little and they are almost completely um, doing research. Uh, at my university at BYU, it's it's a bit more of an even kind of balance where I have an undergraduate class, a graduate class that I teach every lecture in and then I, I run my lab. But nevertheless, when I got hired, the expectation was that I would start my research lab, and I, I did, uh, which or they gave me a physical space, they gave me a budget, and then it was simply me getting what I needed. It was coming up with my sort of shopping list of, of equipment and, and chemicals and, and devices that I would need, whatever machines I'd need to start my research like I had been doing, um, as, uh, as a PhD student and a postdoctoral fellow. And really that's the purpose of the postdoctoral fellow, as far as I understand it and why it's so much more important in some disciplines than others. It's basically that if I, um, if I were to have graduated with my PhD in English, I- I'm done, I'm ready to go. I, I would think. And so a university would just say, all right, you're, you're good to go. Let's get you. But if I graduate with a PhD, in, in life sciences, for example, but the expectation is that I'm someday going to run my own lab that costs the university a considerable amount of money. They will give a professor, a newly hired professor, hundreds of thousands of dollars to start that lab. You know, these, this is not a cheap process. And so to the postdoctoral fellow is basically a way of showing I am, I am an independent scientist. I know what goes into running a lab and managing research projects and getting them completed. And so, having done the postdoctoral fellow, the the future life scientist or physical scientist has been able to show that, and then they are you know ready to be hired, which is you know. And again, I think that's why a postdoc is more necessary in some disciplines than another. So that was that's kind of the mechanics. You get a budget, you get a physical space, you start the lab, you get these things in, and around that same time, of course, you need people. Most laboratories at At elite research research laboratories, like you'd mentioned MIT, almost all of that research is going to be performed by uh, employees or postdocs. You actually have hired research technicians or you have hired postdocs like I was at Duke in Singapore. Undergraduates will do very, very little and even PhD students won't. Well, depending on the lab, they may even have a smaller part. My university is very different in that regard where we are the the one of the part of the mission of this university is to mentor undergraduates, and so it is expected that our labs will mostly be um, managed or filled with undergraduate students who are taking research credit, and and so that was a part of my process of establishing my lab, kind of spreading the word. And the university, my department, helped with that, and of, of course it helped a lot that uh, it was the metabolism research lab, and everyone loves the word metabolism so I had more students interested than I knew what to do with very early on but the nice thing about this is it creates this this very good synergy and I hate that word but it's it's so overused but I think it's the best word to use where I need students who will help me get manuscripts published. These all of these undergraduates are all looking to go on to another step of school. Almost always in my department, it's med school. Virtually all of them are are pre med students. Easily ninety percent of every student who's ever been in my lab, um, of the dozens and dozens at this point, uh, they've they've been pre med, and they want to make sure that their med school application is as competitive as possible. And I let them know. Uh, i my determination is to get them listed as a co-author, if not the first author, on a, a manuscript, a published manuscript, or even to have done a presentation at a scientific conference. That simply makes them more competitive because everyone who's applying to these uh these these types of degrees are going to have good grades and they're going to have done well in school, most certainly, and so I like to think that I can give my students an edge as their mentor by helping them get sufficiently involved in research projects, um, to get them published before they have applied to medical school. And and I'm pretty successful at that. And many professors are, of course, that's not unique to me, but that that's how I have started my lab to answer the question and how I've involved students, of course, including graduate students. I have every, every year had, um, either a master's student or a PhD student, and, and indeed even a Wonderful PhD student now, and she's she's doing great work, and and it's a it's a wonderful role for me. I enjoy I enjoy being to someone else in a way as a mentor or a guide, as as others were to me, uh, and, and that's something I, I think about um, and take seriously. Uh, and it's and indeed, it's something I enjoy.
0: I can see why the pre med students are drawn to you because the title of your book is "Why We Get Sick," and you're. Uh, Particular passion is learning as much as you can about what insulin resistance is and what it does to the body. And I would think, you know, future doctors would be all over that. Like, yeah, I, I want to know that. That affects right. pretty much every cell in the body, according to your book. There's no part of our body that doesn't have a reaction to to insulin. And the more we understand what those reactions are, the more we can understand. The majority of the diseases that are fouling our population—is that—is that a good summation?
1: Oh yeah, perfect. That's right. In, in fact, even that interest, um, really the the justification for the book, it was—you'd think—you'd think that it was simply born from my research in my lab, but actually. It was really born from my teaching, where when I first received my teaching assignment, when I was hired, they had tasked me for teaching a class called pathophysiology, the sick body, basically. Um, And that was because the retiring professor had been teaching it. And so they said, well, the next person we hire is going to teach that class. and. Boy, I, I faked it. I, I faked it so, so big. Uh, I, I had never taken pathophysiology in my life. I knew what it was um, uh, just because I'm, I'm clever enough to piece together the words and the meanings of these separate words. And it was just, it's the sick body. So by the time the student has come to pathophysiology, they've had physiology, which is how the organ systems, you know, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the brain, how they're working when they work well, and then when they come to pathophysiology, all these nursing and pre-med students, now it's to learn how these tissues are working when they aren't working well, why they're not working well, how to tell they're not working well, and then what to do about it. And in those first semesters, I was so insecure on that overall topic. I mean, that's insight, all the students listening. In some, when you have a young professor, it's very likely that he or she will only really know a couple lectures ahead of what you're learning. And then any professor, I'm sure many professors could nod their heads sagely and and agree with what I'm saying in their more honest moments. Regardless, it was certainly the case for me. I I was scrambling, and I was nervous about it. And I thought, how can I, how can I bring in insulin resistance, which I am an expert in uh, as a scientist? And wouldn't it be nice if I could lean into this a little more? And so when I prepared my diabetes lecture which is the most obviously relevant aspect of insulin resistance. I, and indeed, at the time, kind of the only one I really thought about, I made sure I spoke about insulin resistance because that would be a topic, that would be a lecture that I could just breeze through, no stress involved whatsoever. But then I wondered, well, I'm preparing my hypertension, my, my, my elevated blood pressure lecture and I know that I saw this paper once about insulin resistance and, you know, maybe I'll look into that a little more and, and, and to include that in this lecture and as just a little bit in, in a way. And sure enough, it was phenomenally relevant where, in fact, to the point that virtually every person with insulin, uh, with hypertension, that is, it's likely caused by insulin resistance. And nevertheless, to kind of wrap, to speed that up. Almost every topic I was going through, whether it was certain forms of infertility, whether it was problems with the liver, problems with the heart itself, problems with the brain and, and, and many more, I was shocked at how relevant insulin resistance was. And so this, this exercise, um, as a teacher, as a professor, that I was undertaking to be able to more comfortably go through my lectures and, you know, to calm myself down in a way, but also perhaps to give students actual insight into these diseases that I thought few people were talking about, too few. Um, it was that effort that really created the the thesis of the book. It was this realization that there is a, a common, that there is a health disorder that is one, v- a very often overlooked, and two, relevant to virtually every chronic disease, what I call the plagues of prosperity. And by allowing us to acknowledge the role of insulin resistance in these diseases, then my view had become, and, and again, I, I express this at book length, that we can treat diseases better uh, and, and then you know, detect problems sooner, treat them better, ultimately improving, perhaps dramatically, the health of an individual.
0: And chapter three specifically, uh, I think, would be of interest to listeners because it talks about the effect of insulin on the brain and the effect of insulin on learning and on memory. And everybody listening is somehow very invested in the health of their brain, Um, whether they're a student, whether they're a professor. um, And so I wonder if you could talk about just the real tangibles about uh, it with... um, memory and learning. I know you also get into the uh, when it becomes full-blown disease, things like Alzheimer's, which may mm-hmm. um, not be as tangible for listeners, although they, they have loved loved ones who are elders who may be facing uh, Alzheimer's right now. But could we just break it down to the nuts and bolts of what insulin is doing in our brain, particularly when we're, we're getting too much insulin?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you pointing the finger at that because Everyone listening, the students and the professors, the brain, as I like to say, is is the money maker. If you're investing in education, higher education, it's really that you're investing in your brain, and and what you're going to be able to get from it in the future that it'll be sufficiently valuable um, to to make the education worth it, that expense and time. And so, pointing at the at, pointing the finger at the brain is is wonderful. Uh, one of the, yeah. So insulin, as you said very well, literally. Uh, And I don't use that term the way kids do these days. I do mean literally, literally insulin affects every single cell in the brain, uh, in the body from, from all the brain cells to, to bone cells, from liver cells to lung cells. It doesn't matter. Um, Insulin is telling that cell what to do. It's telling it to do something. And the theme of that something is to tell that cell, those cells, what to do with energy uh, and, and, and even then one step beyond in defining it, it's, it's basically telling that cell to store energy, to build something. And, and of course that a student hearing this would think, well, I, well, then we need that. We need to build things in cells. Absolutely. You have to have insulin. If you don't like in the case of an untreated, um, t- uh, someone with untreated type one diabetes, it is very lethal, very quickly. You have to have insulin in the body in the case of the brain, Insulin, its role in the brain is is more of a, is more of a recent appreciation. And indeed, it wasn't even until the past decade that we knew that insulin is even relevant to the brain taking in glucose. And, and, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit um, just because it is so relevant. The, the general consensus, even in classes of life sciences, there are students who may be listening to this who have been taught that the brain must and can only rely on glucose as a fuel, you know, glucose in the body, in the blood, what commonly called blood sugar. And and so that's that, that is absolutely myth. Um that is not true. The brain does not have a total dependency on glucose. While glucose is certainly a primary fuel for the brain, um in fact, I'll just elaborate on that more for a moment. Glucose is a primary fuel for the brain, but not the exclusive fuel. And insulin, the hormone insulin is involved in the brain getting all of that glucose to meet its energetic needs. So uh, uh, to to express it a slightly different way, the brain is an energy hog at rest. you know, As you and I are, are sitting and discussing this, our brain is likely, it's the second or third highest rate a highest metabolic rate organ in the body. And because our muscles are sedentary at the moment, they are very low on that list. So the, the the brain is an energy hog. It has a very high metabolic demand and insulin helps the brain get some of the glucose that it needs. However, over time, due to lifestyle, mostly uh, the brain starts to become insulin resistant. Now insulin can't open those glucose doorways into the brain as well as it could before. And so the brain can't get all of its energy from glucose anymore. There is this energetic gap, you know, at the top end of it is what the brain needs. And now we've pushed what it can actually get down. You know, it's almost like the fuel gauge in the car is starting to tip closer and closer to empty away from full. The brain isn't getting enough energy and we can detect this in people with not even full blown alzheimer's disease where it's very obvious but you can even detect it decades before where it's just cognitive decline you know the person's just having a little bit harder time remembering things and 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 saying what they want to say they're they're losing some eloquence you know for example and that's of course a subtle gray area that's hard to define suffice it to say you can detect this compromised glucose use by the brain decades before a formal diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So this matters, including to perhaps young people um, who think they're immune to this sort of thing. So again, the brain can become insulin resistant and that compromises the brain's ability to get glucose. But now the brain needs some other energy and the only other real energy the brain uses is a molecule called ketones. And that's a whole other topic um, unto itself that I won't get into. I will simply say this. If a student or professor, someone whose life is dependent on using their brain well, my strong recommendation is to leverage this additional fuel for the brain, namely ketones. Allow the brain to be the hybrid engine that it really is. Don't just force it to rely on glucose all the time. Allow it opportunities to use ketones. And the best way to do this is to lower your hormone insulin. When insulin is down, now the body starts, it shifts the way it's using fuel and it starts making ketones from from fat, including from stored fat in our fat cells and again, so when insulin is down, the body starts making ketones and ketones are very beneficial for the brain. And indeed there is evidence in humans to suggest that the brain prefers ketones over glucose. And in extreme instances of full-blown Alzheimer's disease, giving someone, putting them, getting their blood ketone levels higher into what's called ketosis, they actually have real-time improvements in cognition. Whereas, An Alzheimer's patient is so debilitated that he can't get himself dressed. You put him into ketosis and now he can. You have another woman with Alzheimer's who can't draw uh, the the face of a clock, which is a test that they have someone with Alzheimer's do. Now put her in ketosis and she can draw the face of a clock, the circle and the numbers and the dials. So there there is a very real um, benefit to the brain. By having access to this alternative fuel, and unfortunately, the modern diet, certainly the the undergraduate diet, is is uh, it, it sets us up to fail because we eat starchy, sugary foods so often. It's so many snacks, so many terrible meals, or you know, if it if we can even call it a meal, you know, eat, eating cups of noodles or you know, top ramen or cereal, which is sort of like meth to an undergraduate. Um, that is just a a sure way of keeping the hormone insulin elevated all the time and thus no speck of ketones being produced to, to provide this alternative fuel for the brain.
0: I was thinking about the undergraduate diet as you were talking. And I was thinking about, uh, part of my own experience was, uh, going through some food instability, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly as a graduate student and the food pantries, um, had the foods that you've just described. And for me, they were a food desert. I uh, have food allergies. And so um, I just fasted a lot, which also mm-hmm. can drain your energy pretty tremendously. Um, but what would your suggestion be for, our um, universities listening to you? Is your own university uh, food services listening to you? How do we make sure that undergraduates have access Whether they live in a food desert, whether their dining hall makes it really easy to quickly access, you know, that grab-and-go sandwich that's on a, you know, a fiberless white bread, or to just get a quick bowl of cereal, or the food pantry is really stocking, as you said, the prepackaged foods that are the the ingredients list is stuff you cannot pronounce. You can't find the food in the food. What What do you say to students who that's what they have access to, or that's what they have ready access to, and to Suggest you know, um, as my doctor did to me. Well, just find somewhere new campus and buy yourself a healthy lunch. I was like, what part yeah. of yeah. makes you think I have expendable cash?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I what what a wonderful question, Christina. It really only asked um, by someone who knows who knows what it's like. Um, in, in some instances, the the almost poverty that you have as a student, which I vividly remember. Um, I vividly remember, uh, you know, during that time of kind of my early life crisis, as I call it, how poor we were kind of uh, in, in just trying to support ourselves. Uh, it, well, even before I was married, of course, um, it, I mean, even I remember having arguments with my roommates about who was going to buy the toilet paper because it was just an expense that we thought was, you know, uh, none of us wanted to incur it. So what can you do? As I've spoken with undergraduates about this, there, there is almost my advice is change breakfast if you can do nothing else, but you can change breakfast, stop buying big bags of cereal, and buy eggs. Eggs, I consider eggs one of the most single, singularly nutritious foods, uh, and they're so they're so versatile. You can do so much with them. And, and I don't want to get into the topic of you know me being sort of a dietitian for a student, which which I'm not. I only speak to this because I am familiar with enough data to to defend it but change breakfast and either i mean you you'd said fasting and certainly fasting too much actually turns into starvation but but the the sort of deliberate use of fasting on occasion can be very good and indeed it it certainly will boost a person's ketones because the hormone insulin comes down but but you know that of course for especially for undergraduates um fasting can perhaps turn into um Something else, and I say that with a great degree of sympathy, as I've known some under some female undergraduates who who struggle with eating disorders, and so me mentioning fasting sort of puts them on a path they don't want to go back onto. So I I, I, I won't.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. I appreciate that. I was not trying to uh, introduce the idea of fasting as a suggestion. It was, it was a way of saying I had nothing to eat.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So in your case, it was not, it was not willing fasting. And I was just merely saying, I do think there can be tremendous value of deliberate fasting when it's it's on purpose and it has a time and you have a plan for when you end it. It's not triggering for that person. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But nevertheless, my simplest advice would be to change breakfast. Now, unfortunately, I would look at the undergraduates here, and, and when they're when they're living on campus, they have a wonderful variety of foods, including scrambled eggs and and omelets, but they just go for the cereal. You know, if I'm just thinking of breakfast, they go for the cereal or the bagels. And and you you almost can't blame them. Certainly if that's how they've been raised and it's accessible, well, golly, you know, you're gonna go for the cereal. But insofar as a student listening to this or or, or anyone and they're thinking I I am not feeling my sharpest. I am having hard time paying attention or in the mid morning or early afternoon, I really do start to kind of crash and I have a very hard time staying awake through that class. I wouldn't be surprised if a few hours before that you are eating something starchy or sugary and you have this big bump up in your blood glucose and then you have the subsequent tanking of the glucose and again if your brain is only having access to glucose you're not allowing it to use ketones because they're not there then your brain senses that drop in glucose and as the as the glucose goes down literally the energy to the brain goes down and of course, it's not fair to expect the brain to continue to function as well as you wanted it to. So change breakfast. At, at, let that be a first step. Stop spending your money on big bags of sugary, starchy she- cereal and focus on, on eggs, which are very, very affordable, very versatile. And they have a wonderful, what I, I kind of joke, uh, it's, it's a divine mix, if you will, of protein and fat. And that is essential. Uh, there's nothing in that cereal, uh, you know, for example, you, which is almost totally carbohydrate. You don't need that. It's not essential. Eggs, in contrast, uh, and, and many other foods as well, of course, give you the essential proteins you need. They give you the essential fats you need. And the fact that it doesn't spike your glucose and your insulin means that you 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 have the benefit of perhaps fueling the brain with you know allowing the brain to be the hybrid that i that i mentioned earlier using both fuels ketones and glucose most certainly in the morning where insulin has come down overnight your body's more insulin sensitive you've shifted how the body is using fat you know actually burning more fat than than glucose at the time, and that itself creates more ketones. And so by being really good about your breakfast, you just simply help that kind of metabolic magic of the morning keep going a little longer.
0: That's really helpful advice. Thank you. You also talk um, about the role of being physically active in in how our body handles insulin and then also about how efficient our brain will work. Can you give some, and I know for our listeners and uh, who haven't picked up the book yet, there's back matter that uh, walks you through uh, how to do a lot of this and gives you some food advice, some uh, fruits and veggies that are really mm-hmm. going to help with your ketones. Um, and, and also some exercise, uh, advice as well. But for listeners who don't have the book yet, uh, they put in the request of the library and it's not here yet, uh, for yeah. them. What, what is your advice about, um, some exercise for, um, you know, improving their, their mental and emotional health right now, which is something that students and professors are really feeling a drain on.
1: Right. Yeah, my, my simplest advice with regards to exercise is do it. Whatever it's going to do, just do it. And, and even it will, it will most certainly help your body have a, an improved glucose level and an improved insulin. That is the obvious benefit that I speak to as a scientist. Um, and and, and you, one main reason for you bringing it up, it will definitely help in all of that regard. But I think too few students appreciate the habits or, or the path that they're on as undergraduates, where in a way you are, you are, uh, sort of, uh, settling into who you're going to be. And, and later in life, as you, as you grow uh, more, you know, if you, if, um, you know, emotionally and, and, uh, with regards to all aspects of life. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's an important time then to, to decide what will be the habits that I want as, as, as an adult, uh, as a, you know, a real sort of contributing adult to society, because as much as I love undergraduates, they're not really contributing to society. Um, And they're, they're not expected to yet in, in many ways. But once, once, once you do, you graduate into that next phase of your life, let physical activity in any way, really, and I do mean any way, be a part of that transition. And when you have, I, although I say this with some sympathy because there's some students who hear this might think, well, it doesn't apply to me, but where you have roommates and, and you know hopefully these friendships, um, what, a, what a wonderful time to then you know, do that with them. I, I, for example, I am still one of my roommates, and we would go to the, to the weight room here on campus and work out, you, know, you know, three to five times a week together we are still friends. And, and I think it was because those early morning kind of walks to the gym and it was a cold, um, winter morning, uh, and even talking while we're at the gym, you know, flirting with whatever girls would look at us. Um, you know, and, and anything else, all the conversations we had, whether it was during the workout or walking to and from the workout. And I see students out running together and, and girls are just so much better at this than guys. You know, a guy doesn't really want to go out and run with his dude, but a gal does. So there, there's such a there's such an emotional support component to it, and thus a social component, and and again, of course, you're improving your metabolic health, and and uh, and setting the uh, so potentially setting some habits that you will be able to more easily retain as you get older, when you really need it. I
0: appreciate that you bring up the importance of having someone to do programs like this with because change is hard and if there's no one around you who understands that you're not trying to be fanatical or dramatic about uh, what you're eating or or adding in some exercise you're actually trying to support your work-life balance you're trying to support your brain health uh, which supports your physical health as a student as a professor wherever you are in your walk of life um it is incredibly helpful to have some sort of community, whether it's one person as your community or your roommates want to get in on it or your housemates, your immediate family. How can someone find a, a partner to get started with in this? Because it can be hard to make a change like this all alone.
1: Oh, it sure can. So when I was a student, the only options would have been my, my roommates or, or a club on campus. And I can, I can imagine, I think, you know, every university is loaded with clubs and I don't mean kind of fraternity sororities. I mean, like, like a, like a walking club or, a, or a, um, a weightlifting club or, you know, whatever, a chess club. There are so many of these things. And I would say if, if there's a student listening to this who is feeling lonely, um, look at that, um, look at the clubs. Um, but even then, you know, it does involve the student, Taking that step, and and for some students, and anxiety, the way it is these days for so many young people, that itself can be crushing, and 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 unfortunately, I cannot speak to that, um, very well, but I'd say look in your immediate circle of your roommates or your you know kind of neighbor, your your apartment neighbors, um, and then alternatively clubs where you know when you're going to that club, at least with that one topic, whatever that is, you will be around like-minded people. Uh, and, and that is a wonderful way to develop some some social interaction that, that hopefully could lead into certainly physical activity, but even other activities that just help you be more, uh, more of a well-rounded individual.
0: I appreciate that you brought up the idea of building habits and that habits we start now can become lifelong habits. Um, is there a point where it's too late to start thinking about how your insulin resistance has affected your body and your your brain fog and all the rest, or can you start right now?
1: Right. Yeah. So, so transitioning from the students to the professors here. uh, No, it's not. Uh, There are instances, actual published human data of people in their sixties and seventies, um, who engage and start transitioning, um, with regards to changing their diet and changing their physical activity. They build more muscle, they strengthen their bones. Um, when it comes to exercise, I mean, even that, that, even, even the fact that you can, in fact, get bigger, stronger muscles in, in your 60s and 70s, many people will just think, well, that's impossible. It, it is not. Um, and it is certainly worth fighting for. And then the dietary changes work at uh, any age. I have personally known, um, I know a couple women in their 70s who had struggled with type 2 diabetes, which is very much a disease of insulin resistance, for decades, and within months, they were they were literally off of all of their medications. Their diabetes had improved so much, or in other words, their insulin sensitivity had improved so much that they no longer needed their medication to manage their type two diabetes. Um, and, and for them, it was absolutely a new lease on life. Uh, they these two gals who who didn't they they don't know each other. Um, they their their enthusiasm for life uh, and their their optimism was did a total 180, which was very, of course, very gratifying for me um, and just, and fun. But uh, even of course, all the more testament to the fact that it is, it is never too late to start um, taking steps to improve your insulin sensitivity and then enjoying the improved health that will come with it.
0: So my final question is for students who are so overwhelmed by everything. Many students are parents or are caregivers to family. Uh, Many students do work and put themselves through school. Um, And then for just all students, the workload can feel so overwhelming. How would you frame focusing on time for wellness as a part of their academic life so that they don't say i can't make time for that i have then i would be taking time away from my academics how would you position this as a, a a a part of it that actually is supporting the rest of their academic life
1: yeah yeah so i would say perhaps the easiest way is to acknowledge the relevance of the food we eat and as much as there is an interest in exercise very culturally if you really want to improve your health, it's not through exercise, it's through the food you eat and thus, and and that's nice. Um, but it's also a challenge because when you start asking someone to change their, and you'd mentioned this earlier, change the food they eat, you're asking them to change habits and perhaps to a degree, honest to goodness addictions, um, that have come with the type of food they eat, the comfort that they get. Um, and, and so I would say don't, if it, the nice thing about this is that it doesn't require really a time burden. It is simply as you're doing your shopping plan sufficiently that you you're changing what the food you is, the the food that you're bringing into the home. And that is a big deal. I, uh, for me, winning the war on changing your diet is one in the grocery store. You, you must be disciplined and, and and have a strategy, you know, don't, they always say, don't, don't go grocery shopping hungry. And that is so true. Um, So whatever you have to do, um, make sure that when you are in the store, buying the food that you will be eating, be smart about it, be honest about it. And for me, for example, that means I don't buy cereal. If I have, and and that's totally a result of my undergraduate days, if there is cereal, I'm addicted to cereal. Uh, Really, I don't know of any other word to describe it. If there is cereal in the house, I will eat it until I make myself sick. I, I just, I, I can't. I have such a hard time stopping. It takes what I consider to be superhuman discipline. Now, my wife doesn't have that problem. Um, She could. Not that she really cares about cereal anyway, which boggles my mind, but she would have a few bites or eat a small little bowl of it and be perfectly content and think she's done. And it might be reflective of some uh, some of my own addictive tendencies where you know even like when it comes to other treats, uh, if I am going to, I eat very little junk food, um, but sometimes I, I will and it's very much on purpose. And I will say, all right, I'm going to get a pint of Ben and Jerry's uh, and, and, and I'll, t- I mean, you know, I can, uh, maybe I'll call my wife. I'm at, I'm at Target and it's a Friday night, which is what I've, you know, I told myself, right, that's my treat for the week. And I'll call up my wife. All right, sweetheart, what kind of ice cream do you want? And she'll say, well, I'm just going to have some of yours. And I'll say, no, you're not. I'm eating this whole pint because unfor- I just know once I take a few bites, I won't stop. And, and, and it's okay. Uh, I've kind of planned for it. Uh, I'll, I'll get through it just fine. But but she will, I will get her her own little pint and she'll eat, you know, five to 10 bites and then put the lid on it and put it away. And I can't, I cannot relate to that. I'm looking at that one woman who I've almost spent 20 years of my life with. And I'm thinking, who the hell are you? How, how do you stop eating that ice cream? I, it's, she's just becomes a little stranger in my mind. Um, well, anyway, so back to the point, because there was one and I didn't forget it. Um, change the food you eat. That doesn't involve a time commitment. It does involve, I mean, really, it does involve some planning though, but you can, that is something you change without it disrupting your schedule at least. And then when it does come to exercise, which is something I'm very passionate about. And and in fact, maybe to bring the two of those sentiments together, my sentiment is you eat smart to be lean and, and healthy, if you will, and you exercise to be strong. So you exercise because you know, you want your body to do things. And for me, as my little children are growing, I, I now have a teenager. So you'd say I'm, I'm thinking too far down the road, but I do nonetheless. I'm already thinking, what am I doing now by way of exercise to make sure that I can continue to do stuff when I'm a grandpa? What am I going to want to do with my grandkids 20 years from now, you know, or, you know, maybe even 15 years from now. Uh, and so you exercise to be strong or, or capable physically, which matters very, very much. So the food I discussed, exercise, which is something I am a big advocate of, but it's also now kind of getting to your point. How do I squeeze in exercise, um, which is now a time demand? It's something I'm very sensitive to because I, if I'm exercising, I am out of the house. And, and for me, I exercise here on campus uh, in fact, right when we get done, I will go to the to the gym here on campus, the, the student weight room. But I really think about this because I think this is time that I could either be home helping my wife with the children who are home today because of schooling, with them not having school on Fridays, or I could be in my office working on one of you know the many tasks, one of the many irons I have in the fire, hammering on it. And so I look at this and think, all right, there's something a little selfish about this time but it's also an aspect of sharpening the saw so to speak the time that i'm going to spend now i will be very effective with it i'm not going to loiter and wander around i am there to work out and then i'm done but when i the hope is when i've come back to whatever task it is i'm better i i my i've sharpened the saw you know i've given i've taken the blade away from the tree i've been able to, i've taken the time to sharpen it and when i put it back at the tree so to speak I'll be able to be much more productive. So that I encourage people to look at physical activity that way. One of the ways of sharpening the saw where it seems like it's downtime and not productive time, but it very much can be, especially nowadays where I would imagine students listening to this um, while they're working out. and And maybe nowadays as more and more classes are transitioning to online, they could be working out while they're listening to a lecture. And so there are ways, you know, to maintain a very obvious productivity, but but, but having said that, having said that, I strongly encourage you young people, please, please have some quiet time. Take out the earbuds, turn off the music, you turn off the podcast. You, you, we are becoming a, almost a culture of, uh, uh, where we are uncomfortable with our own silence. We need to have quiet time. And that, that actually is, Um, when I work out very, you know, when I will occasionally go on a run, you know, very early in the morning so that I'm, I'm home for breakfast because I'm, I breakfast is daddy's domain, uh, in our family. Um, but I don't listen to things. I I want to have, I want to think, I don't want to have sentiments interrupting my thinking. And and I want to remember that I'm part of a big world and that is sometimes very quiet, uh, and, and wonderfully so. So as much as I just said everything I did, I almost want to take it back. Um, students, when you do have moments of exercise, um, either let it be a moment where you're talking with someone and, and making that kind of connection, which has lasting value, or you're you're connecting with yourself in a way. And I don't mean to sound that in a say that in a silly way, but you are. You're, you're wondering about you, yourself, um, how you're doing, you're taking stock of, uh, or you're just, you're thinking about things and finding solutions to some of your thoughts. So please have quiet time, take quiet time and, and perhaps during exercise, but even then that is sharpening the saw. You are going to be able to come back to whatever you were doing with a clearer head. You would have been thinking about it during your exercise session. And then when you sit back down to that laptop or whatever it is, I can almost guarantee you're going to be better than you were when you left, than than before you left. Thank
0: you so much for sharing that and for all that you've shared with us today. And this has been a really wonderful episode and one that I know that listeners will really benefit from. We've been talking to Benjamin Bickman about his career in the life sciences and his new book, Why We Get Sick. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.